Hey, Player Two. It's me, Kitty M. How did I get the house keys to your place? That's an amazing question that I am not going to answer. I'm uh, here in Meat Space because it's Canada Day and I wanted to hang out. Well, not with you. I came here to watch a hockey game and there was Canadian beer and that was pretty awesome. But it's a few hours before I can get back to the Land of Pod. So I'm like, why not make a Meat Space episode? sit with you in your lounge and as it is Canada Day I thought I would talk to you about my favorite Canadian Kiefer Sutherland I rank him higher than Ryan Reynolds but not higher than Deadpool Deadpool will always be my actual favorite Canadian but Kiefer Sutherland is pretty talented he's very talented he's a gift to acting his range is breathtaking and if you don't believe me just consider the fact that the same person who can play likable tom kirkman the committed family man who becomes the unlikely president of the united states in designated survivor is the same one who played the utterly detestable robert doob in eye for an eye the same guy who is the shrinking creepy egoresque mad scientist in dark city dr schreiber is the same one who plays one of the most well-known action heroes who didn't save the day for the Nakatomi Corporation, Jack Bauer in 24. But we are not here to appreciate Kiefer Sutherland, even though we totally should and often because he's given us a lot from voice acting in video games and animation, thank you for Dragonlance and Metal Gear, to an even rather listenable country music album. Turns out he can sing and play guitar too. What can't he do? Beat me at drinking? (laughs) No, seriously, I'm challenging him. That challenge is out there and he can accept it anytime he wants. What I am actually here to do is talk to you about the characters of Kiefer Sutherland and defend them. Now, make no mistake, he's played some truly awful people. As I said, Robert Doob, a sociopathic rapist and murderer who is truly creepy. That scene in the cubby house. Ugh. Lieutenant John Kendrick and a few good men was at best a dogmatic pawn of an outdated and ineffective system of instilling camaraderie and discipline, and at worst complicit. And Tad Allagash in Bright Lights Big City, which is a film more people need to see, was the epitome of what happens when having money means you never have to be morally responsible for anything that you ever do. But there are some other characters, the people who've just thrown into that bad character basket without truly considering how bad these guys really are. People do it all the time. They did it with Decepticons, they did it with Vader, they do it with Cobra Commander, and they even do it with Hydra. Yeah, alright, I can understand that last one because Marvel needs to stop making all bad guys be Nazis. There are three standout characters for me that Kiefer Sutherland has played that were actually good guys. Or at least anti-heroes. Or at least less bad than you first thought. Let's get to the list. I want to begin with one of my favourite characters in anything. Dr. Schreiber from Dark City. Dark City didn't get great reviews when it came out because I guess people like to be wrong about brilliant things. They do it all the time. I don't understand why. It was a mix of genres. Film noir mixed with dark fantasy horror sci-fi. Which sounds like it'd be a dog's breakfast but got the portions right and became one of the greatest fusions of flavours in cinematic history. The detail that went into making that film. The sets, the lighting, the action behind the main story. They created an entire universe in something like two hours. Of course, the best version is the director's cut. Don't waste your time with the theatrical. That's what neckties think you want to see. This next bit is a bit of a spoiler. 
Okay, I'm about to tell you the whole movie. Dark City is about a guy called John who wakes up with no memory. He can't remember his stunning lounge singer wife. He can't remember who he is. He can't remember his name. And all of this might be part of a psychotic break he's having because it turns out he's actually a serial killer who delights in taking the lives of women. Then, in the granddaddy of plot twists, it turns out none of that happened. The entire city is just an alien experiment on humans. The aliens change the city each night, making buildings and streets appear and disappear. They do it all through a power called tuning. And as they change the city, so too do they change the humans. Their memories and experiences get mixed and matched every night. John has woken up before being given his new personality. The man in charge of the memories, and the one I like to think of as the true hero in all of this, is one Dr. Daniel P. Schreiber who appears as nothing much more than an Igor in a suit. He has a pronounced limp, one of his eyes is deformed, his speech patterns are just off-putting, and he has a weak heart, you know. The perfect shrinking and sniveling collaborator to this controlling elite. And he is creepy. Whether it's the way he tilts someone's head back to administer the needle through which they inject their memories, which is straight into the forehead, or the way he salivates over the liquefied form of a memory about sex. He's off-putting. All his fellow humans are mere experiments to him. The only thing he truly values is his own scientific brilliance. Or does he? Schreiber, like everyone else, has no memory of how he got there. He was forced to erase his own memories by the aliens. Now, whether the mixture that erased his memories is one he created or the aliens did is unclear. But either way, he retained his knowledge. And it's what he does next that makes him the good guy. So, John, dude without the memories, who's apparently the main character, but I say it's Schreiber, has developed the ability to tune, just like the aliens. When the aliens question Schreiber about this, he says maybe it's an evolutionary step forward. The aliens mock his suggestion, saying it takes several lifetimes for them to develop the ability. And here is our first definitive clue that Schreiber is the real hero in this. Due to the nature of the experiment that the aliens are conducting, humans in the city could have experienced several lifetimes in just one standard Earth week. Schreiber is the one who creates their lives. He's the one who knows who they are, who they've already been. He keeps records of it in his notebook. He's allowed to remain who he is because he's the one with the knowledge of the human mind that the aliens don't possess. So, it is completely probable that Schreiber has been working to cultivate the tuning ability in many of the humans in the city. After all, he's proof that the memory solution doesn't necessarily wipe out all of your experience and knowledge. You can pick and choose. And when you realize that, things become a little clearer. For instance, why does he insert the memory of Shell Beach, a place that is the antithesis of the city in which they all reside? A veritable hell for the aliens who despise both sunshine and water, something Schreiber is privy to, which is why he finds refuge at a swimming pool. Yet, Shell Beach exists on maps, billboards, some people can even tell you how to get there. Another thing, why is Inspector Frank Bumstead, who is hunting for the serial killer, why is he so brilliant? Why does he have such attention to detail? Why is he allowed a musical instrument to play? It, it serves no purpose unless it does. The inspector feels out of place in the city. He knows something is up. And really, he can only know this if Schreiber has allowed it. 
Shreba openly mocks the inspector's observations about John's personality, knowing full well what that action will result in. Shreba, though admittedly appearing detestable and cowardly, is still a genius. The man creates entire histories day in and day out. It's improbable to think he's not learning from the experiments as much as his alien overlords, if not more so. So it makes no sense to assume that any of his actions or interactions with his fellow humans, as shown in the movie, are an accident. But Shreba can never be the hero. He can't get the girl. He doesn't get to be Superman. He knows this. He's aware of his physical appearance, his personality, his overall way of being, his mannerisms. He knows it's all creepy. At a point later in the film, he gives John a changed version of the memories he was meant to receive. In these, Schreiber inserts himself into the memories to teach John how to defeat the aliens. And in those memories, Schreiber walks upright. His gestures, his voice, actions, all completely changed. He is the version of himself that he possibly wants to be. The version the world would like. The version that could be the hero. Showing he's aware of how he really is perceived. In those memories, he also allows John the memory of falling in love with his wife. He didn't need to do that. But he did it. Shreba can never truly exist with his fellow humans because he knows they're all a lie. And he could never give himself the chance at being able to tune because he knows if he tried, that would most likely result in rebellion never occurring. He'd be found out. So he has to work within the system. But he uses the power he does have, the privilege, if you will, to enable others around him to do just that. I don't think he ever intended John to be the hero. In fact, I think the inspector was always Shreba's great hope for change. I think he was cultivating a chosen one, or a chosen many. But John is the hero he gets. The one audiences say saved the day, when really, he's just the guy with some brain powers. So Shreba, the creepy offsider, he's actually the hero in this story. He knows what's out there. He knows what's at stake. He does it anyway. Also, he has glasses and is intelligent, and I, I find that really attractive in a person. No, you have weird taste in people. Shut up. Let's just get to the next character, okay? The next character is a bit of a tricky one, but roll with me, player two. The sniper in phone booth. So I'm going to start this by telling you that shooting people is not the correct way to deal with a flawed society. It's not right. Don't shoot people. Society is messed up. We all know it. And we totally reward the wrong people for doing shitty things a lot of the time. But shooting people is not the answer to that problem. This is not an endorsement of that action. Ever. But the sniper in phone booth is a much more grey character than most people seem to understand, and he could even be considered a good guy. Or okay, at least not as evil as everyone thinks. Phone booth is about a terrible guy called Stu who is held hostage in a phone booth by a mysterious caller who tells him if he leaves, he'll get shot. To complicate matters, when the police arrive on the scene, they think Stu is responsible for the shooting death of a pimp who tried to get him out of the phone booth. No guesses for who actually shot that guy. Everyone uses this plot to naturally assume that the caller is the bad guy. And sure, Stu isn't a wonderful guy, but the caller kills people. Which, if this was just pass-fail, yeah, caller is a bad guy. But so is Stu. Stu is one of those sleazy publicist types who weasels favours and work out of everyone he can. He squeezes every opportunity for what it's worth to him. He's a self-important jerk who's trying desperately to use his position to get young actresses to sleep with him or consider sleeping with him, despite having a very devoted and loving wife. 
Worse still, he doesn't even think he's that bad of a person. So one day, he's using the phone booth to hide his relationship with an actress from his wife. The phone rings, he takes the call, it's the sniper. The voice on the other end belongs to Kiefer Sutherland, but it might as well be the voice of God as far as Stu is concerned because he's getting called out for all his flaws and failures as a decent human being. Spoilers ahoy, but I'm getting that you guessed that. This isn't the first time the sniper's done this. He says he's killed at least two more before Stu, a pedophile and a stockbroker. He gave them the chance to repent, to change their ways, they didn't, and now, well... The character of the sniper isn't a nice one. He aggravates the situation. He forces Stu to feel ashamed, to feel grotesque, to be overtly disgusting, rather than hiding behind the charm and smooth words he's used to. Stu has to face up to everything, and Stu has a lot to face up to. At one point, the sniper talks about being in Nam, and Stu tries to use that as leverage to get out of his situation. Classic Stu. To which the sniper mocks him for believing such a blatant lie. Sniper is the one who is the master of manipulation at this. The one with the real skill and intelligence, and in this situation, the power. And Stu has to finally face up to the fact he's not that great. Which is rewarding to watch. I mean, who hasn't met some slimy leisure suit Larry Loser who knows exactly how to play the system just enough to never ever actually have to do any work, but somehow manages to come out on top every time? I'm not saying they deserve to be shot. A few hours sweating in a phone booth, being made to face their own shitty existence and the effect it's had on everyone around them? I can be down with that. I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but the sniper is generally not a bad guy. No worse than Rorschach in Watchmen or Dexter. He's at least following some kind of code that has to do with how people contribute to society. Do is only ever for himself. And again, no, don't do what the sniper does. He goes about it completely the wrong way, but you've got to admit, he's not exactly as terrible as you first thought. Right? Now finally, David in The Lost Boys. There are many characters who are maligned unfairly in this world, but David in The Lost Boys... I would put him in the top five. The Lost Boys is a vampire cult classic that was making those bloodsuckers 80s icons long before Spike and Buffy came along with his Billy Idol-based looks. David is the leader of the Lost Boys, a vampire gang that's treating the beachside area of Santa Carla like their very own all-you-can-eat. He has the least lines in the entire film. He's not even the main character, but it's him. The iconic images of him that people associate with Lost Boys. If you haven't seen Lost Boys, there are many spoilers ahead, so go watch that, then come back to this, and you'll see why you were wrong if you thought David was a bad guy. The film starts with a family moving to Santa Carla, a single mum with two sons, Michael, the older brother who looks a bit like James Dean, and Sam, the 80s fashion victim. Michael becomes infatuated with a girl called Star, who is part of a gang, headed up by a peroxide blonde pirate rock star looking David. Everyone rides motorcycles, it's all very rebellious. The Lost Boys are generally considered misfits in the area, and yes, they're vampires, so they are technically eating people, but I want you to consider who they're eating. The first guy is a security guard, but after that, every victim they choose is a general lowlife anyway. The only group the Lost Boys are shown to be feasting on in the movie are a group known as the Surf Nazis, a unsavory collection of unwashed and unsocialized jerks who are aggressive and mean. They're the ones causing the trouble in the daytime for the residents of Santa Carla, and for what reason? I mean, a vampire has to eat to survive. Seems to me, the Lost Boys are just finding the most ethical way to do that. 
by targeting those members of the community most dangerous to everyone else. And have a look at who makes up the Lost Boys. We have our standard rocker guys, but there's also that little kid, Sonny, or whatever his name is. Why is he a vampire? I don't want to imply that if your kid becomes a vampire, it's your fault as a parent. But this little kid seems pretty nonplussed about the whole deal. The group care for him. He feels at home with them. And it seems to me that if you're more at home with a gang of vampires, then maybe the home life you came from wasn't that ideal. Not once is he shown to be being mistreated or not looked after by the gang. Then there's Star, the love interest. Yeah, she's probably under some spell of David's, but she's generally allowed to do whatever she wants. And consider this, there's a point early on in the movie where she's about to get on Michael's bike. The Lost Boys show up and David calls her over to him and she goes. This is either because she's afraid of him or maybe because of some of that vampire mind control stuff going on. Doesn't matter. She doesn't go with Michael. Instead, Michael is lured back to the Lost Boys' secret hideout where he takes his first steps towards becoming a vampire. Without even knowing it. We can argue that David does all of this just to get Michael back to the hideout. Or does he stop Star from going with Michael because he knows she's starving at this point. In order to become a fully-fledged vampire, she needs to feed, and she hasn't yet. And she's also really into Michael. If she gives in to her hunger, she'll never forgive herself. And why does David get Michael into the gang? Two reasons, I think. First, he's acting under the instructions of the head vampire, Max, the man who's been courting Michael's mother, Lucy. Told you there'd be spoilers. Max, who yells at the Lost Boys to get out of his store, but just before he does, you'll notice David raises his eyebrow at Max, talking to Lucy like, Hey! David also observes Lucy being kind to a lost little boy, and doesn't act with derision, but instead almost sadness. David's job is to bring Michael into the fold so that Lucy will follow, becoming a mother to the Lost Boys. If Michael's in the fold, it means David and his gang finally get a mother. They get someone who actually cares for them, not like Max, who seems more interested in controlling them. Second, I think it's because David wants to be challenged. Or to be free. Sure, he enjoys brutally murdering and eating people, that's part of the course for a vampire. But constant parting? The constant rebelling? It's not giving him what he truly wants. Can you live fast if you can never die? Michael gives him a challenge. Michael stands up to him. Michael pushes back. He wants someone on his level. Star is a nice character, but the girl has less personality than the sheer drapes around a bed, and all the others in the gang just agree with him. The only form of challenge he has comes in that of Max, and he can't openly defy him. If we know anything about vampire lore, it's that a sire has a certain degree of control over those they change. So, David changes Michael. And even after many of the Lost Boys are subsequently slain by Michael, Sam, and the Frog Brothers, David still offers Michael a place by his side. Keep in mind, when the first of the Lost Boys is killed, David cries. Their connection is real. Now, whether he cries because of emotional pain or of relief of knowing that either way, a freedom from the existence he knows is coming, no one can be really sure. In the final battle between David and Michael, it's a test of skill and of strength. Michael wins. When David dies, it's not the horrifying splatterfest of his companions. It's sad, mournful. He's lit by a bright white light. And when his body is discovered by Max, his face has changed from the smirking, devilish monster to an angelic, fresh-faced young man. Because David was never really the bad guy in all of this anyway. 
Also, Michael is completely unlikable and boring. He stands up to David, but only because he's one of those jock types who thinks because he can lift things that girls should want to be interested in him and not David. Star made completely the wrong choice. She should have gone with the guy who didn't scoff at her when she's like, don't drink it, it's blood. But Michael's still like, well, David gave me the bottle of this stuff, so I should drink it, despite the fact David's been turning his rice and noodles into maggots and worms. What a jerk. Let Michael become a blood-sucking monster, then continue dating David, because he's clearly superior in every way, including being super good-looking and intelligent, and generally having better dress sense. I know that's not an argument for why he's a good person, but usually the best-looking guy in the movie is the good guy. So I'm putting that in the list of reasons David from Lost Boys was a good guy. And here endeth the lesson. My portal to Land of Pod has just opened. I've got to go. I hope you enjoyed it, player two. And uh, if you're player two in Canada, happy Canada Day. See you in the land of pod. Or shoot me a message at ChaosKittyM on Twitter. I sometimes check it. I check it a lot. Until next time, player two.